0: Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with Kayla Min Andrews about the posthumously published novel by her mother, Catherine Min. The book is called The Fetishist. It's a great pleasure to welcome Kayla Min Andrews to The Reading Life. Kayla is a New Orleans writer who's part of one of the loveliest bookstories around. After her mother, Katherine Min, died of breast cancer in 2019, Kayla's uncle Colin established a writer's residency in her honor at the McDowell Colony. After Kayla read from her mother's work at an event, she and her uncle and stepfather began to think of publishing Catherine's unpublished novel and essays. Now that novel, entitled The Fetishist, is here, and it is a stunner, filled with startling insights about men and women, the cost and power of making art, the way the world views Asian women as well as the way they view themselves. For Kayla Min Andrews, editing her mother's manuscript and writing the afterword have been labors of love. That work has also heralded a return for her to her own writing. Kayla Min Andrews, welcome! Welcome! Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations and thanks for ushering this book through publication.
1: Thanks.
0: It's a lot of work. I mean, <laughs> Now, you write in your afterword about happy crying and, and how this effort has brought you both joy and pain, sometimes at the very same time. And it seems like an act of devotion and respect as well. But it was more difficult than you thought it would be and it almost didn't happen so tell us how this came to be
1: yeah it came about in a very sort of unlikely way it wasn't on my mind necessarily for i mean for at least two years after she died you know it always felt really sad to me that the work she had been writing before her death the novel and the essay collection you know i just kind of thought oh well too late that's bad you know just one more sad thing about her death and then it was sort of a group thing where um yeah my uncle set up the fellowship at mcdowell mom loved going to mcdowell and then we did an event with mcdowell to celebrate the fellowship and then kind of seeing all these people's reaction to mom's work because for the mcdowell event in 2021 i read one essay and one Excerpts from the novel. And so, kind of that feedback and that excitement, and so many people who were at that event, which was on Zoom due to the pandemic, but just getting that feedback and excitement, and people were like, when can we read the whole novel? When can we read more? And that sort of planted the seed and just made us all realize, like, wait, it's not too late. We could just try and see what happens. And so, I just reached out to mom's friends and kind of asked for advice, and it was Kathy Park Hong. Who She wrote a book of essays called Minor Feelings, which is mm-hmm. so amazing, it's about being an Asian-American woman artist and seems like kind of in conversation with mom's essays. Yeah. And then I was really happy and excited and surprised by her generosity. She passed the manuscript on to her agent and then agent found Sally Kim, an amazing Korean-American woman in publishing at Putnam. Now it's happening. <laughs> yeah.
0: And it wasn't ready In the traditional sense of the word. I mean, after your mother got her diagnosis, she never looked at that file again in her computer.
1: That's right. She was a fiction writer her entire life. She wrote short stories. She had her debut novel, Secondhand World. And then she was working on The Fetishist for years. But then as soon as she got her cancer diagnosis, she says it happened literally in the oncologist's office. She decided, you know, I don't want to write fiction anymore. Like, I, I want to explore nonfiction, which she had never written before but she, she, she just realized in that moment like my time is limited and in my very limited time I don't want to finish polishing you know she was in the polishing stage for the fetishist she had a solid manuscript but you know she, she was always a perfectionist and so she she wasn't ready to put it forth yet but she was really close but then as soon as she knew her time was limited she was like I, w- I want to write personal essays I want to explore what I've lived through and who I am and make sense of mortality and my dying process And so she switched to essays.
0: So how did you go about putting the puzzle together? What was that like for you?
1: In terms of the novel, it was first finding the file. (laughs) Um, So she, you know, her laptop became my laptop after she died. I inherited her laptop. And I kind of knew it was on there, but I don't know. It didn't occur to me to, to look it up for a while. And then when I decided to look for it, there were all these files called the fetishist plus something, some date or number or description. And I was like, Oh, my God, how am I going to find the most recent? I'm not the most tech savvy person. Then I realized you can organize it by how recently the file was opened. I found the most recently opened file. And it was striking. I knew that she stopped working on it as soon as she got diagnosed. But it was still striking to see the file had not been opened since March 2014, which is when she got her diagnosis. So it was like she literally never opens the file again.
0: She sounds like a person who meant what she said when she said yes. it. <laughs> I
1: mean, yes, absolutely.
0: So much of this novel, like your mother's first secondhand world, which is such a beautiful book, is about mothers and daughters. So it must have been like having a conversation with her as you went through that manuscript.
1: It is interesting. Yeah. The Fetishist is about a grieving daughter in particular. Right, right. And her quest for meaning and healing and revenge and violence <laughs> after her mother's death. So that is an interesting parallel that I definitely recognized some of myself in Kyoko's daughterly devotion, you know, this kind of fierce right. pure devotion towards her mother. But I also feel like I wish I was as cool as Kyoko. <laughs> like it's more aspirational.
0: <laughs> well, give us a broad outline of the plot, which is so outlandish and so wonderful.
1: <laughs> yes. So we have Kyoko, who's in her early 20s. She's a Japanese American punk rock singer and musician and she draws anime and her mother was a classical musician who died and she blames a colleague of her mother's a white male violinist um, and she wants to get revenge that white male violinist is daniel the novel has you get it from different perspectives you get kyoko's perspective you also get daniel's perspective you know daniel's 50 kind of reached a point where he's pretty miserable, and he's thinking about the one that got away, the love of his life, Alma, who's famous cellist, but is suffering from a terminal illness. So there's some suspense about will Kyoko get her violent revenge on Daniel first, or will Daniel get to reconnect with the love of his life, Alma, before she dies?
0: And tell us a little bit more about Alma.
1: Yes, so Alma's a Korean-American cellist. I think she's supposed to be, like, top of the top, you know, one of the best Cellists in the classical music world, who so had this amazing career, traveling, you know, performing in Italy and all over the world.
0: So these are really remarkable women. They just carry you through the plot. So tell us about Kyoko a bit more. Tell us about the moment she realized she would become an artist.
1: I think Kyoko, throughout her childhood, was drawing, like to draw anime. kind of get the darkness out through her art like drawing violent anime (laughs) and um yeah making up songs on the guitar and um music and her mother always encouraged her and you know other people were sort of alarmed maybe by the violent drawings but her mother was always like that's great wow look at how realistic that splash of blood is great job
0: (laughs) Well, music is such an important part of this novel. So, was your mother a musician as well?
1: No, not at all. I think she did, had to take some obligatory violin classes as a as a kid, but quickly rebelled. No, I think it's like a great artist as a writer, and so sort of using the classical music almost as a metaphor, you know, for art making and, and being an artist. But she didn't have any particular expertise in classical music at all. She found a musician at John Hopkins, a violinist and professor there, uh, Michael Kanan and she would correspond with him and run all the music stuff by him. She really wanted the novel to read as accurate to a classical musician, you know, to someone who actually knows, <laughs> but she had to kind of get help figuring that out. And and I continued some of that work in the editing process. I reached oh. out to him as well. And, you know, just checking every little musical reference, every little description of someone's fingers as they're playing scales or, you know, just wanting to make sure there was nothing that would jump out because mom was a perfectionist. So she didn't want any little detail that a classical musician would read and be like, that's not right. This person doesn't know what they're talking about.
0: Well, it's so filled with passion. I mean, Mm -hmm. you believe it. Kyoko's, you know, punk rock songs and then Alma's beautiful cello numbers. And she describes that process with such beauty and at such length. It's really Staggering to realize she's not a musician. (laughs) And then Daniel, the fetishist of the title, is a musician as well, who has an interesting kind of line of work that he's fallen into.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So he was also playing at that elite level, traveling around when he and Alma were younger. But now he's a bit older and I think his career didn't quite work out so well for him. But now he has this job playing for the dying So he has a string quartet and they travel around playing, you know, in hospice centers and at people's homes um, for the dying and their family members.
0: And while this is a novel about race and various ideals of femininity, it's also an amazing chronicle of the art making process. Because the art is for all of these people, it gives them it costs something to become an artist. Mm It gives you great power, but it costs something as well. So talk a little bit about that and thinking about your mother as you were reading, working
1: on this book. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, to be an artist, you're really connecting to what's inside you. And there's a lot of darkness inside most people or inside artists. And you're connecting with that and engaging with that and channeling it. We see that with Kyoko and her punk band, and she's screaming, and she's getting a lot of the the darkness out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then in terms of kind of obsession or all your energy going towards this thing, and then for Alma, there's an element of because she's so prominent in her career, you know, being being looked at by the public and and being in the public eye, and uh, maybe how that affects you. could be a cost
0: as well. Well, I love the arguments about art that that Alma and Daniel have. I mean, mm-hmm. what's more important, the, the life of the work or posterity? I could have read several more pages about that. I yeah, mean.
1: definitely. <laughs> and just and like the f- compromise, how much compromise is correct or appropriate, right? Don't they, they have an argument about Dante and how he got exiled and he could have come back, but he refused to compromise his principles.
0: Right. And then there's that wonderful scene where she sits down in the middle of a bridge and begins to play.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Busking. I know. She's <laughs> supposed to be one of the most elite, top cellist soloists of the world, and she's just busking on a street corner in Florence.
0: What was it like for you to read this when you read it now? I mean, you said all along your mother had read, written and sent you passages. Mm-hmm. as she was working on it so how did you evolve a grand scheme for this book or a great picture of it
1: as she was writing it i had a sense of the character but mm-hmm. not how they fit together um and then you know and then just didn't think about it pretty much for a few years and then after she died you know kind of rediscovering it reading it again i was struck by the way it's all woven together the way that she she took the long like the chapters that she sent me it was kind of like here's all this stuff about kyoko but then to see it kind of chopped up and woven in like short chapters um, mm-hmm. and creating that suspense and momentum is exciting i was really surprised by the ending the final chapter i had read that chapter but i didn't realize it was the ending ah. and that kind of blew my mind and part of me was like are we sure about this are we can you do that <laughs> like
0: I think your mother could do anything. (laughs) Now you write in the afterword about long, wonderful afternoons with her reading, which I loved so much, and how she encouraged you in her own way to become a writer or to become more engaged with the world. So tell us a little bit about that path and and how she influenced you.
1: So growing up, uh, we read novels out loud together. I mean, starting when I was a kid, but then continuing in my teenage years. And then, you know, after I left home for college, when I would come back for vacations and stuff, um, reading out loud and kind of experiencing literature together and then talking about it was a big part of what we did with our time together. And also she would read me her works in progress out loud, like her first novel, Secondhand World. I remember she would read chapters to me as she was writing them. Yeah, it was never like, you should become a writer like me. Yeah, but right. I think it was more like she could tell that this was something that I was passionate about and I loved, and we loved talking about stories. And I and I wrote as a kid. But yeah, her message to me was always, I think that I'm more cautious by nature. She was a big like risk taker and very bold and kind of larger than life, out there making things happen, decisive. And I was always a little more cautious. And her message to me was always kind of like, know, if you trusted the world a little more, shared a little more of yourself with the world, I think the world would appreciate it and it would be good for you. (laughs) And um, yeah, as she was dying, I realized, I don't know, it kind of hit me the extent that I wasn't doing that or the extent that I wasn't really happy or proud of how I'd been living. Kind of seeing her die and there was a source of solace in knowing that she had lived the way she had wanted to live. And it just kind of came naturally to me at that time. I was like, oh, I'm not living how I want to live. So how could I fix that? I was like, oh, yeah, get back to writing. Because I, I didn't write for the first 10 years after college. So, yeah, in my early 30s, I was like, I'm going to start writing again. And and it felt so right in terms of, mom. Um, you know, she had said it before, but she also said it in hospice, like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I wish you would share more of yourself with the world, something like that. And so it feels very connected to that now that I'm writing and it it feels really right for what I want to be doing and what I've kind of always been yearning to do, but didn't quite dare before.
0: Well, so Um, where are you on your, on your writing path now? I mean, how has New Orleans been a part of that for you?
1: uh, New Orleans has been a huge part. It was really in 2019 after her death that I, that I started in earnest and took it seriously and was just like, I'm going to go for it. But I didn't, really know any writers in New Orleans I didn't have a community I just hadn't been out there trying to build that or yeah and so then I I was able to meet a bunch of writers and now I feel like I'm really connected to the literary community in New Orleans and yeah I met Maurice Carlos Ruffin um, mm-hmm. at a writing group called Podunk it's oh a yes really, really special writing group um, and yeah and and I was I was very early in my writing career then kind of just starting out and yeah now I go to lots of events with Liminal they're mm-hmm. a wonderful literary organization in town yeah and like Maurice will be the conversation partner at the event for the fetishist uh, January 16th in New Orleans and yeah so it's the, the writing community in New Orleans is so warm and so welcoming and so supportive and like collaborative rather than competitive. I don't know I hear things about other cities and it sounds not as good
0: <laughs> I know we're very lucky, aren't we?
1: yes so lucky so lucky. I didn't know you know I was very I was very raw at that time kind of late 2019, early 2020 but everyone was so welcoming and it definitely my confidence grew. There was a connection with meeting other writers in New Orleans and and them taking me seriously and taking my writing seriously and being able to share my writing with others and get feedback. Um, all of that happened for me in New Orleans and and I took some classes at the New Orleans
0: writers, writers workshop.
1: workshop. Yeah, I had some great teachers there and um, grew a lot from those workshops.
0: It's such an act of stewardship and love to take care of someone's literary legacy. You know, you're always going going to be a caretaker of that. My husband had written six books when he died, and so I knew, I knew that was a huge responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I I feel for your work in this area. I know it's very hard to do.
1: Thank you. It's yeah. I mean, it's it's a joy to do, and it feels like high stakes. You really want to get it right, right? You don't want to. You just want it to all happen in a way that they would have been happy with and proud of. in a way that honors
0: them. And in some ways, it's almost easier to do it for someone else than for yourself.
1: Yeah, in a way, especially depending on your personality. But Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, talk a little bit about the title for me, if you would, The Fetishist. It's it's a beautiful cover, by the way. God,
1: it's gorgeous. Oh, my God, I love the cover. We we talked a lot about the cover. We wanted something that would show, like, but this book is a unique reading experience. It's funny, it's wild, it's crazy things happen, but there's also kind of a beauty and an elegance. Yeah, it was, we wanted a lot from the cover, but I think they really nailed it.
0: Well, and, describe uh, it. It's so... Yes. It's-
1: it was my stepdad Greg's idea to have a blowfish on the cover, which is perfect. And it connects to your other question about the title. So yeah, the cover is a giant blowfish. <laughs> this is called, a, it's called fugu in Japan. Um, and it's a delicacy... But it's one of those you know kind of it's like a kind of a macho delicacy, like it's often pursued by men, including white tourists in Asia, as a sort of a destifying thing to eat because uh the fish naturally contains a poison right that will kill you within minutes if you eat it, but the specially trained chef knows how to remove that poison before they serve it to you so, so
0: it's a risky thrill,
1: right, it's a risky thrill, it's an exotic experience you can tell everybody about. <laughs> And I think that's very connected to the title also. Yeah. Well,
0: tell us about what you learned about Asian women and what you learned about yourself from reading your mother's book.
1: It goes deep. There's a particular chapter that I'm going to read at the event, um, definitely at the event in New Orleans, that's like very much about fetishism. And it's something I was aware of and I would hear mom talk about. But the way it's laid out in the book, I was surprised. I was at first, I think it took me a while to really feel the pain of it, and mm-hmm. now when I read certain parts, there's this pain that really gets me. It hurts me, you know, the sort of hypersexualization and objectification and dehumanization. Yeah.
0: And is that something you would want to write about as well?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm interested in writing about Asian American women as well. You know, characters who are, and the way that it. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think it's something that will be in my writing, maybe not as the main focus, but as a part of life, which is, you know, these kind of concerns or thoughts or interactions where you're like, ooh, was that, Eh." you know, that's um, (laughs) just kind of a part of life, you know, so I'm interested in not omitting that. Yeah, I don't know if I would focus on it quite so. I mean, I mean, mom kind of laid it all out here.
0: <laughs> it's it's such a provocative title to start with. It is. And a provocative cover to match. And it's such a sexy book. <laughs> it is. I mean, I can imagine, were there any moments of awkwardness <laughs> reading this book?
1: I mean, I'm pretty used to it. It's funny. That's actually something I will explore in my own writing. It's just, I think some people find it really hard to imagine. But to me, it was normal, like, because remember when I was in high school, mom was reading me Joss, The Secondhand World, which also has some exuberant sex scenes. (laughs) And yeah, I always knew that sex was a topic my mom wrote about, you know, and we would talk about it, read it out loud. Like it wasn't, this is part of life and part of her work. And to me, it, it wasn't awkward at all, actually. But looking back, I'm like, wow, it's kind of hard to explain that to people without it seeming really odd to them and i want to explore that and sort of dig into that a little bit
0: but it's something that that's so hard to do well
1: mm-hmm. you know oh, yeah.
0: on one hand you have to kind of stand back and admire it just for the achievement <laughs> yeah. of it
1: there are whole classes taught you know creative writing classes about how to write sex <laughs> it's yep. <really> hard. yeah
0: <laughs> Well, it's it's an amazing book on so many levels. I mean, I really couldn't put it down. So I think it's going to find a wide audience, and I hope it does. We've been talking with Kayla Min Andrews about her mother's posthumously published novel, The Fetishist, by Katherine Min. You can meet Kayla when she appears in conversation with Maurice Carlos Ruffin, Tuesday, January 16th at 6 at Blue Cypress Books. Kayla, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. Jonathan Santlofer discusses his book, The Lost Van Gogh with Tom Piazza, Friday, January 12th at six at Octavia Books. The Tennessee Williams and New Orleans Literary Festival is offering writing resolutions, a day-long writing retreat, Saturday, January 13th. All sessions are virtual. It begins with a free writing session from 10 a.m. to noon, followed by Create Successful Habits and Design an Inspiring Writing Habitat at 12.05, then get published from 1.30 to 2.50, find an agent at 3, then build a writing community at 4.20. Check out tennesseewilliams.net to register. Matt Haynes signs his two books, The Little Book of King Cake and The Big Book of King Cake, Sunday, January 14th from 8 a.m. to noon at the Crescent City Farmer's Market in New Orleans City Park, Tad Gormley Stadium. Matt also appears Tuesday, January 16th from 8 a.m. to noon at the Crescent City Farmer's Market at Uptown Square, both presented by Octavia Books. Tom Andes appears with Anya Groner and Adrian Van Young for a goodbye reading. Sunday, January 14th at 7 at Bar Redux, 801 Poland Avenue. Kayla Min Andrews talks about her mother's posthumously published novel, The Fetishist, by Catherine Min. She appears in conversation with Maurice Carlos Ruffin, Tuesday, January 16th at 7 at Annas, that's at 2601 Royal Street, presented by Blue Cypress Books. One Book One New Orleans kicks off its New Year with a reading from the 2024 selection. Black Creole Chronicles, Poems, by Mona Lisa Saloy. That's Wednesday, January 17th at six at the University of New Orleans, Earl K. Long Library, room 407. Howard Fishman discusses in signs to anyone who ever asks, the life, music, and mystery of Connie Converse. Thursday, January 18th at six at Octavia Books. Mona Lisa Foster signs her novel, Threading the Needle, Friday, January 19th at 6 at Garden District Bookshop. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeier and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at WWNO.org. And you can email us at The Reading Life at WWNO.org.